Well, it's a delight to see all of you, and um, uh, I am hoping at the end of this message we're going to break bread together. I trust this is going to be a very powerful time as well, but um, I'd like to uh, just say for those that are visiting, we have been doing this series for many weeks now. We have part 20 in uh, 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, if you'd like to find it on your Bibles, in your Bibles, or on your phone, we are looking at verse 18 to, to today, 1 Peter 3 verse 18. And uh, we, we've been thinking about suffering. We've been thinking about how we can live well in difficult times. And uh, as, as I've said already, we are certainly living in difficult times right now. And uh, we need to have God's perspective. We need to have His, His um, perspective on history so we can understand what is happening right now and how we best can live um, in this really, really difficult time that we are experiencing right now. But I, the, my, my message, the title of my message this morning is Victory after suffering. Victory, victory after suffering. I want to point you to the victory that we have in Christ this morning and how that enables us to live well through difficult times. And so we're going to look at this portion together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I really do want to um, give credit this morning as I've prepared this week. Um, there's three people that have been really helpful to me in my reading, and that's a guy called Stephen Cole, a guy called Michael Eaton, who's a staple of mine, and also John Piper. And so much of what I'm going to share this morning is out of the reading that I've done uh, over this last week. And uh, this is what the uh, uh, verse 18 says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So, Lord, please help me <laughs> with this portion. Um, you know, one of the first things that you learn when, you, when you're studying homiletics, homiletics is, is, a, is how to preach. Uh, one of the things that you learn right at the beginning is, is if you choose an illustration, it must not be complicated, and it must explain your point more clearly. All right? And uh, I think it would have been cool if Peter had, had a homiletics course when he, before he wrote this portion. Because verse 18 to 22 are, sp are supposed to be his illustration of what he said last week. Remember last week, what, what, what did we look at? We looked at verse 17, which um, encouraged us that we can not fear people's threats. Remember? Do not fear their threats. Revere Christ in your heart. We don't have to be frightened when, we, when we're looking at facing difficult situations. Revere Christ in your heart, says Peter. And then he carries on and he says, And be ready at any time to give everyone who asks you a reason for your hope. The hope that you have in Christ. That's what we looked at last time. Well, now this is supposed to be Peter's illustration of what that means. Because he begins with, For Christ. So now he's trying to explain, and then the, the verse 18 is, is, um, 
is, is quite plain. But then verse 19 to 22 are really, really complicated. And uh, Peter in this text is sh- trying to show us Jesus as his primary example. And he says in verse 18 that Jesus suffered unjustly as a witness to the world but that he was vindicated, there was triumph for him at the end because he was resurrected from the dead and he's now ascended to the right hand of God. All right, so that's the first point he's trying to make. Secondly, in verse 20, he uses the example of Noah, uh, who was a witness also to God's plan in, in a world that was hostile to God. And he too was vindicated by God. There was triumph for him as he came through the flood with his family and was delivered in the ark. And then thirdly, Peter uses this illustration that all of us should be willing to be a witness to the world. And he talks about baptism, and he says we should go through baptism even if it means that we suffer persecution, knowing ultimately that God is going to vindicate us, and in Him we're going to find our vindication. So Peter's overall point is quite clear, but this illustration in verse 19 to 22 is a little complex and difficult to understand what he's trying to say. And Uh, Martin Luther said this, that perhaps this is the most obscure passage in the Bible, and he himself said, I don't really know what he's trying to say in verse 19. And so um, I'm going to try and do my best, because I'll do my best. But if if Luther, Luther struggled, then perhaps some of us will struggle as well. But Peter's main point is this, just as Jesus was a witness to the world through his suffering and through his life, and he was vindicated by God at the end through his death and resurrection, We too can be a witness to the world in how we handle suffering and trust that as we do that well, God will vindicate us. That's Peter's main point. All right? That's Peter's main point. That's what he's he's driving at this morning. And so I'm going to try and look at verse 18 today, and then I'll look at the complicated stuff next week. Remember, verse 17 is the context. Verse 17 is, it is better... If it's God's will that you should suffer what is for, for, what is, for doing what is right rather than what is doing wrong, rather for doing what is wrong. And so the, the point is that we looked at last week that, yes, we're going to go through our lives and there are going to be times where we're going to suffer for what is doing right. But that's not an easy thing to hear. But when we suffer for what is doing is right, there's something that God does deep in our hearts that builds us in an incredible way. And I said to you last week, If we're suffering in our lives for our own stupidity, our own stubbornness, our own bad behavior, then best we just repent, right, and change. No good to say you're being persecuted at work when you're just an objectionable person, when you're rude to your fellow workers, where you are just unpleasant in every way, and then you say, oh, it's because I'm a Christian, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're just behaving badly. So if you're behaving badly... (laughs) then change. That's what Peter's saying. Don't suffer for doing what is wrong. Suffer what, for doing, you know, if you're going to suffer, it must be for what is right. And so I think there's a lesson in that for all of us, that uh, the inward work of the Holy Spirit is helping us to become more like Jesus and suffer. Sometimes we do suffer because we make bad decisions and we're stupid. And at those times, we just have to say, sorry, Lord, I made a mistake. Let me get on and will you change me? All right? So Peter's, that's what his, his main point is. And here he's trying to um, explain and I- illustrate this main point that he's making. So let me just make some, some comments, and then I want to get into the actual text. First thing that P- Peter's doing is preparing us all that we're going to have to experience difficult things in our lives and suffer. Secondly, I'd like to say this by way of introduction. Suffering for 
the gospel, suffering for doing good, suffering for Jesus is not a new thing, and it's been true for most of history, all right? Most of history, people have suffered for being Christians. It's not ever been safe to be a Christian. Never. It's never been safe to be a Christian. Stephen Neal was a guy who wrote a book called The History of Christian Missions, and he said this. He said, in the first three centuries when the church was growing and spreading like wildfire, every Christian knew, I'm quoting him now, every Christian knew that sooner or later he or she might have to testify to their faith even at the cost of their life. That was a given. That if you were a Christian, there was going to be pain for you in the Roman Empire. That's absolutely true. And just think of that situation for a moment in terms of how we do evangelism today. What about preaching a gospel into a context that said, if you believe this gospel, it's probably not going to do you any good. Your life is not going to get materially better. And it's likely that you're going to get killed if you believe this gospel. Well, that's what it was like for the early Christians in their context. And yet it says the church grew like wildfire. People were prepared to believe this good news, even if it cost them their lives. That is a powerful thing for us to remember in the 21st century. And we've done the opposite. We were talking last night with some friends about people going around the world as missionaries. And we've, we've put this onto kind of mission, that safety is the most primary concern for us. Safety is the big deal. And so we label countries that are not, uh, where it's a bit dangerous to preach the gospel, as countries that are not open to the gospel. They're closed to the gospel. What does that mean? It means if we preach the gospel there, we might get into trouble. I want to put it to you that Peter and Paul and most of the early church would have found that concept absolutely, they wouldn't have understood it at all. For them, to preach the gospel was to go to dangerous places and to live out the truth of Jesus and perhaps suffer for the good news that they were bringing. And when you look at the early apostles, you look at the early church history, it is littered with examples of men and women who gave their lives. The blood of the martyrs cries out from the ground, says the Old Testament, where they were prepared not to compromise and say, we will suffer for this message, and if necessary, we'll die, because there's a king in heaven who's worthy of all that we can give him. Man, it's radically different, isn't it? Oh, we lose our homes, we lose our money, we get sick occasionally. Oh, we're suffering. We're suffering so badly. <laughs> I don't know that we are. And Peter's trying to, he's trying to prepare us to suffer well, to live well when things are tough, that we can, we can live with courage and conviction by the power of the Spirit. So I'm, I'm going to do my best to encourage you this morning. All right? Remember verse 17? Um, I just want to say this as a little... When, when Peter says in verse 17, he says, do not fear their threats. Remember he says that? Do not fear their threats. He is quoting Isaiah 8 verse 12. You know what? Isaiah 8 verse 12, if you want to have a look, just check me out that I'm telling the truth. Go there. It says this. Do not call a conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. But fear the Lord and fear Him in your heart. My friends, Conspiracy theories <laughs> have been around for thousands of years. Isaiah experienced conspiracy theories. I want to say this kindly as I can. Conspiracy theories, the root of conspiracy theories is pride. 
It's spiritual pride. It's saying, I know something that the sovereign king of the universe doesn't know. And actually, there's only a few people in the world that know this thing. What really is going on? You know? You think this is going on, but you know what really is going on? There's only a few people that know it, and I am one of them. That's what a conspiracy theory is. It's like, it's spiritual pride. It's saying, actually, well, I don't trust the Word of God. I don't trust the God of the universe. I don't trust His plan. I don't trust that He's sovereign. I've got to, I've got to work it out for myself, and I've got these theories of how it all works. Not based in Scripture. Not heard one conspiracy theory that's based in the Word of God. Not one. And it's fascinating to me that right now, those that were experts on vaccinations and uh, virology have seamlessly moved into now being experts on world events and world history. Seamlessly, without even a blink, just going from the one to the other. It's all pride. Spiritual pride. See it for what it is. I trust the Word of God. I trust His kindness, His goodness, that in spite of anything, everything that's happening right now in the world, in spite of Ukraine, in spite of COVID, the sovereign hands of a loving Father are under my life, and He has hope and a destiny and a future for me, and that same hope and destiny and future He has for you. And you can trust Him. I'm encouraging Him, you, to trust Him rather than to trust anyone else. Trust His Word, what He says about your life, and what he, the plan that He has for you. Amen? Better to fear Him than to fear them that have all these theories about what is happening in the world. Fear Him. Revere Him, him in your heart and do your best to love Him, and He will take care of you. That's, that's what Peter's saying. So, suffering in the world is not new. It's been... It's always been dangerous to be a Christian. Thirdly, suffering is still normal in the world, right? Right now, it's still normal to, be, to suffer for being a Christian. It's not, to be safe and respected is the exception. It's not the rule. And uh, I want to give one example because you know we go to Cambodia every year, right? And each year we go there to work with church, church planters. And the first missionaries, evangelical missionaries, went to Cambodia in the 1920s. And by the time they were kicked out in 1965, there were about 600 believers in Cambodia. Only 600. And between 1965 and 1975, when the Civil War was happening uh, there, the Christian population soared to about 90,000 people. In the midst of this really, really traumatic time for the nation, 90,000 people became Christians. So there was this amazing work of God. Then what happens? The Khmer Rouge came in, took control, and Pol Pot unleashed his fury on the nation, and two million people died. And most of them, most of the Christians were killed or fled the country. And so I, I want to just say to you, you can repeat that story over and over and over again when you look at world history. What's happened in China? What's happened in Russia? What's happened in Korea, in Vietnam? What's happened all over the world? It's not been safe still today, largely, to be a Christian, except in our kind of context in the West and so my, my point is to say to you this morning, it is normal, it is not abnormal <laughs> to be hated as a Christian. It's normal. It's the way things have been right from the beginning. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus said it in Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 19. He said this in verse 9, you will be hated by all nations on account of me. 
Jesus, good shepherd, saying to his disciples, you will be hated by all nations on account of me, if you love me. They didn't love me, largely not going to love you. Secondly, I think there's a warning for us in our comfortable Western context. I sometimes get the impression that Christians in the West feel this kind of resentful kind of thing in their hearts because, you know, there's this disappointment that what once was Christian is now no longer Christian in the West, and we're kind of losing ground as Christians. And, and there's this liberal, humanistic, secular, relativistic culture that is kind of taking our Christian world from us, and we're having to fight. Well, I want to say, I, I, I think this is why we need to hear the words of Peter. <laughs> a good dose of Peter right now in the West is a good thing. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says, Do not be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange is happening to you, Peter says. Don't be surprised that this is happening. Don't be surprised that it's difficult. Don't be surprised that people, you might feel like you're on the back foot and you have to stand for your faith and, and fight for faith. Don't be surprised. It's not unusual. This is what the Christian life is. It's a fight of faith. And Peter's not saying this to discourage us. He's saying this to encourage us, to remind us that we are aliens and exiles in this, in, on, on this earth. And it's not surprising that cultural powers and cultural elites revile Christianity. It's not surprising. Don't be taken by surprise. The Romans hated Christians and their culture, and, and, and largely more and more in the West, secular humanism hates Christian values. It just does. Don't be surprised. Don't think people are going to like you if you start standing up for certain things and say, I disagree. This is what the Scripture says. I choose to believe what the Scripture says. Don't be surprised. People are not going to say, oh, that's cool. Well done. Good for you. They're going to say exactly the opposite. Be ready to give an account, a reason for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Be prepared. And do not be surprised when a fiery ordeal comes upon you as if it's strange. No, it's not strange. This is how it's always been for Christians from the day of Jesus until now. What else did Jesus say? Matthew 10, 25. Jesus does this amazing, amazing miracles. The Pharisees say this of Jesus. They say, he's Beelzebub. It's by Beelzebub. It's by the devil. It's by the evil one that he does these miracles. Can you believe that? Can you believe how twisted and warped that is? That Jesus comes and sets people free and heals their bodies. And the Pharisees, the religious ones say, he's doing this by the power of the devil, not by the power of God. Can you believe how warped that is? And this is what Matthew 10 says. If they have called the house, the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will they not malign the entire household? Jesus is saying the same thing. If they say, I'm the devil, they're going to malign you as members of my house. They're not going to think well of you either. Are you happy you came this morning? Six ways. Yes, six ways that Peter prepares us in this one verse to, to, to suffer well. Here it is. I want to connect back to what I last um, said in verse 17 to start off with. Remember, it reminds us the first reason that we should be prepared to suffer well is because it happened to Jesus. For Christ also suffered, verse 17. And throughout the whole of the New Testament, there's this th theme that Jesus gave his life and he suffered physically and we are likely to follow him in suffering. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, 
Oh, that I might know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and that he was conformed to, to his death. What does that mean? Paul is saying, well, it's likely that I'm going to share in the sufferings of Jesus if I preach the same gospel. In fact, he kind of celebrates that. And then what about, what about Mark? When Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is the implication? Jesus bore the cross. We too will bear a cross in our lives. And it's going to involve some difficulty. That's what Jesus says to us. And so here's my first encouragement to you this morning, right? If the most loving, caring, truthful, holy, righteous person that ever lived experienced suffering in his life, it's likely that you and I are going to experience suffering. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to all of us in some way. Let us be prepared for when difficult times come. Secondly, what is my second encouragement to you is also from verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sin. Christ suffered once for for sin. That is the big problem. Sin is the big problem. Your biggest enemy is not the devil. Your biggest enemy is not demons. Your biggest enemy is sin. That's what separates you from God. That's what brings punishment in your life. That is what brings pollution into your life. It affects everything. Your relationship with God, your relationship with your husband or your wife, it affects everything. Sin is the big problem in our lives. Isaiah 59, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. Sin is a problem to God. It has to be dealt with. And the most terrifying thing for me is not that we suffer for righteousness' sake, that we suffer for what is doing Good, but we suffer the anger of God, we suffer the wrath of God in our lives because our sins haven't been forgiven. That's a far more unimaginable thing. Isn't that right? And here's the good news. Plain scripture says plainly, Jesus died for sin. It is done, it is finished, it is gone, it is over. The greatest thing in the world that has been sep separated you from God your Father has been dealt with. It is over. It is finished, said Jesus on the cross. It is done. You don't have to think about it anymore. The way is always open now because of what Christ has done for you. And because of that, you can suffer any difficulty well because Jesus has made the way open to know God as Father. Every one of us come into His kingdom as sons and daughters. And that's why I believe people were able to believe on Jesus even when it cost them their lives. Because they realize that. In other ways, I and the Father are one. We are one. Nothing can change that. And it doesn't matter what happens to this physical body. Jesus has done all to bring me to God the Father. Thirdly, since Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, his death was substitutionary. Jesus took my place. He stood where I should have experienced anger and the penalty of that anger in God's judgment in our life. He was utterly innocent, but Jesus took that upon himself. And he didn't die for his own sin. He, designed, he died for everyone, the sin of the entire world. That's what, this, that, what the gospel 
says. And so, right in that, we see that Jesus is our example for suffering. But I want to say Jesus is much more than just an example for, for, for suffering. Only Jesus is just. Only Jesus is righteous. Only Jesus is sinless. And so, when we suffer, we might think it's unfair. We might think it's not you know, God, why is this happening to me? But none of us can truly say, well, I'm not sure that I don't deserve some of this. Why? Because we're imperfect. We are sinful. And we sometimes erroneously, we compare ourselves with other people and say, well, you know, I'm basically a good person. I mean, if, if only people knew my, my heart, you know. I'm basically a good guy. I've never done drugs. I've never cheated on my, my wife. I basically try and obey the law. Um, well, I mean, why should I suffer? You know, scoundrels, you know, retrobates like Putin and, and other megalomaniacs, they, they, should, they should suffer, not me. I mean, I'm basically a good guy. That's how we all tend to think. Why? Because we compare ourselves to other people. <laughs> and we always compare ourselves to people that we look down on, yeah? But what, what, is, the, what is the measure, really? The measure is Jesus. The, the measure is the, is the perfect righteousness of God, and when we look at the perfect righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, every single one of us misses the mark. We all do, every one of us. And so we break God's law. We make idols for ourselves. And some of our Western idols are money, sex, power. If I have these things, I'll be okay. They're idols in our lives, and we make them idols. We, we do. We all lie. We all we have all done things like stealing and coveting. And if you don't think that you've done those things, go and read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that, shows the true standard of self-righteousness under the law and that every one of us breaks, breaks God's law. Remember, he says, he says things like, you know, you've heard it. Moses said, do not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks, uh, every man that looks like uh, to, to another woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus, by grace, makes the standard incredibly high and says, what's he trying to say? All of you, every one of us, breaks that standard and we all need a Savior. We all need to be rescued from our selfishness and our sinfulness and our inability to see things from God's perspective. We need a Savior and He is that Savior. Every one of us need a Savior. And so, I want to encourage you with that. That His death enables us to live well when things are difficult because He's brought us to God, our Father. And fourthly, it says Jesus died once for all. Once. It's done. You don't have to Worry about, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the Jews had to repeatedly come to the temple and offer sacrifices over and over and over and over again, over and over again, knowing that the sacrifice was what removed their sin from them. So annually and at different festivals, they came and they repeatedly, just animals and bread and all these kind of sacrifices. You can go read about them in Leviticus, the Old Testament. And what is, what is the writer of the Hebrews, his great emphasis, his great point is he contrasts that repeated offering of sacrifices in the old covenant to a once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made that we don't have to worry anymore. It is finished. The sacrifice has been paid. It is done. Once for all. Hebrews chapter 10, first 18 verses. Go and read it for yourself. He says it over 
and over and over again. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Jesus has paid the sacrifice that has completely satisfied the Father, and you are free. Don't have to worry about it anymore. Man, that's good news. The separation has been removed once for all. And then this is what I want to land on today. There's victory after suffering. And our great example is Jesus. For Christ, verse 18, also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. There's the victory. Jesus triumphed and he brought every one of us that believes by faith, he brought us and presented us to God. And so Peter is trying to strengthen us to live well and suffer well, but reminding us that ultimately Jesus has triumphed of the greatest enemy of humanity, which is sin, and he's brought us safe to God. Doesn't that encourage you? He's brought us safe to God. You don't have to fear anything. There's a new safety that he's He's, he's brought to God. Well, you might ask, say, well, why, if you're saying that it's, you know, the early church had to suffer, why, why would anyone become a Christian if you preach a message that says, well, things are not necessarily going to get immediately better in your life and you could quite possibly die? Why would anyone believe that message? Well, I'll answer you in this way. The greatest human need is not to live a long and comfortable, prosperous life on earth. That's not the greatest need. That's the great lie that the, our Western culture has sold us. All you need for happiness is much more of everything. More money, bigger house, better car, more holidays, great sex with multiple people, fame, fortune. You have all of that. You are going to be absolutely happy in this world. That's the great lie of our Western culture. All you need is more of everything, and you'll be happy. We're told that's our, the greatest need that we have. I want to tell you the greatest need, according to Scripture, is not that we live comfortably and uh, like that, of, as I've tried to describe right now on earth. The greatest need that we have as human beings is to know that our sins are forgiven, that our, the separation that we have from God our Father has been removed, and that we can live a, a, a life forever in happiness in His presence, rather living an eternity without Him. That's the greatest need that we have. And Jesus has made the way open for you and for me. And that's why we can endure difficult things well, because we know at the end there is victory coming. There is vindication coming. He is seated at the right hand of God where he's interceding for you right now and praying that you will run your race well, that you will do it well with courage, not fearing everyone else, but fearing him, revering him in your heart. That's infinitely more important than living a fraction of eternity, a minuscule portion of eternity in comfort and excess on earth when compared to all of eternity, it's like just a second in all of eternity. And that's what the death of Jesus accomplishes. You know, the purpose, it's, I love this phrase, it brings us to God because the Greek there has this implication. Uh, there's a Greek writer called Xenophon and he, he used the same word to, to describe when you get admitted to the presence of a king, if you and I met the queen, we wouldn't just rock up and say, hey, Elizabeth, cool to see you. It just wouldn't be appropriate, would it? 
No, there would be an introduction. There would be someone with authority in the household that would introduce you and say, Ma'am, here is Johnny Daguerre. Please meet Johnny Daguerre. There would be an introduction or Stuart Ball or whoever it is. There would be an introduction, and the, and the Greek there is saying, this is what Jesus has done for us. He has enabled us to come into the presence of God and be introduced to God our Father and to be adopted as sons and daughters into His kingdom. You don't just rock up. We've got this thing, you know, because we say that Jesus is, that God is a good Father. There's something that's a little bit odd when we just rock up and think that God is our mate. You know, he's my, he's my chum. I just speak to him like I speak to you, you know, like, like my mate. Like I speak to the boys at the pub. There's something just incredibly wrong about that. Why? Because the Scripture says we love God as our Father. I don't speak to my own Father like that. I revere my Father in heaven. And there's something of a holy awe when I come into His presence, when I know I'm meeting with Him. We had it this morning in the worship time. There was a moment where it was just this tangible sense of there is awe here. There's something wonderful here. This is the presence of God. You don't just rock up into that presence. Hey, yeah, I am. Cool. God, look at me. Now, there's something of a holy reverence that comes on your life when you really are in the presence of God. And you, what does Isaiah say? Woe to me, for I have a sinful man. When he was in God's presence, the first thing he knew was that he was not righteous and holy and that he was in desperate need of God in his life. Last point. Jesus' death on the cross was followed by ultimate victory. I love this. Verse 18, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the power of the Spirit. Come on. Please note that Peter is talking about the resurrection here. That's why he's saying he's made alive by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work in the resurrection of Jesus. We know that. Romans 8, 11, remember? Beautiful chapter, Romans 8. says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, which He is, He will quicken, He raised Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal body. This is the great promise of Romans 8. Because of His Spirit who lives in you. So you can take courage. You can live well. You can endure well. You can suffer well. Why? Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, living in you, transforming you, helping you to be brave, that you're not frightened when, when difficult things happen or when Putin threatens this or when this happens or when this person gets sick. You're, you're, not, you're not afraid. Why? Because you have a living hope inside of you whose name is Jesus, and he is strengthening you from the inside out that you can live well. You can live with courage. This is the gospel. That's why it's called good news. For all of you that, you know, it's been so, so, uh, it's been so, such a difficult thing to see how many people are, are, have given, are, are living with anxiety for myriad reasons, and I understand the reason. Can I encourage you? I'm not perfect. There are moments when I do fear. But I want to say, I'm learning this. As the more that I turn my eyes onto Jesus, we sang as children, the more I gaze into his beautiful face, 
The more I have moments like we had this morning in the worship where there's a sense of, oh, thank you, God, you're here. You know what it does? I feel less anxious. I feel less frightened by the future. I know that I can trust him. I want to encourage you, if, you're getting your, if, if you are getting more encouragement from YouTube, stop. <laughs> I've not heard one person come to me with any kind of theory about that has come from their quiet time. <laughs> it's always some obscure thing they've read on YouTube. Never from their quiet time. Never I was in God's presence and God spoke to me from his word and this is what he said. Never. Not, not once in the last three years. Always this like crap from YouTube or Facebook. Come on, people. Are we living by faith? Are we living by God's spirit? Are we living from his word? That's transforming us from the inside out? Are we living by what everyone else is living by? If I offended you with my language, I'm sorry. But it is. Paul says the same thing in Philippians. I counted all, we politely translated, dung, for the sake of knowing Jesus. What do you think he's saying? Saying exactly the same thing. I counted all, trash, refuse, for the sake of knowing Christ. If we can't get passionate about this, what can we get passionate about, guys? Come on. Let's, let's encourage each other. And he says this. He was made alive by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought what was weak, the flesh, the body that was treated physically and, and condemned by a Pontius Pilate. The Holy Spirit completely transforms that and undoes all that Pilate did. Get what I'm saying? Jesus in his body was weak and he was punished and he was beaten and he died. And then the Holy Spirit says, well, I'm going to completely transform that. I'm going to give Jesus a new body. He's no longer going to be dead. He's going to be alive, made alive by the power of the Spirit. And he is made alive by the power of the Spirit. He's given a resurrected body and there is triumph for him. And the point of Peter saying all of this is that for every one of us that goes through hard times, there is victory coming. In the same way that it is was, victory was there for Jesus, you can be sure that victory will be there for you. You can trust God that he's going to bring you through. You can trust God that you ultimately are also going to be seated at the right hand of the Father in glory with him. You can trust him. He's a good father. Whatever you're going through, you can trust him. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will do the same thing for you in your life if you will trust and put your faith in him. Despite what you're going through, suffering for doing good achieves something far greater than we can hope for or imagine in the kingdom of God. And ultimately, it's followed by vindication. It's followed by victory. It's followed by triumph, resurrection, new life. Come on. That's what happened to Jesus. That's what's going to happen to you. That's what's going to happen to me. Amen. We can live well. Take your eyes off the rubbish. Put your eyes onto him, the great king. Revere him in your heart. Put, put your, your, your absolute trust in him. And he will be faithful as a good father. Can I have the worship team up, please? We're going to. We're going to break bread together.
Okay. Um, is, everyone got a little? Great. Let me just read that scripture again. Verse 18. For Christ suffered, some translations say died, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. But made alive in the Spirit. Jesus, we want to thank you. This morning, we want to remind ourselves once again this morning of the amazing thing that you've done for us. That as your body was broken, you were making a way open. That what separated us from God was forever opened. That sin was dealt forever a death blow that changes everything for us. Thank you that that means we've been brought close to you as sons and daughters. We've been welcomed into your presence. We've been introduced to you as our Father in heaven. And we can expect that that same power will continue to work in our lives. That the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us moment by moment, day by day, enabling us to live well, to live fearlessly, because we know that the future is in your hands. And I want to pray for my friends this morning, every single person in this church community, that as we break bread now, you would seal this in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.